good to see you guys. Do you believe that this is the second to last class for us? So we need to have someone volunteer for the reunion party. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Um, today we're going to go through and finish uh, talking about the church. Uh, but before we do that, if someone want to just uh, open our time with a word of prayer, that'd be great. Yes, thanks, Ted. Good God, thank you so much for another glorious day to worship you, for a day to enjoy the earth you made, and a day mostly to get our bodies fed with your love and your teaching and praying. Speak through Wayne this morning and later through Adam, and uh, we just love you so much. Amen. Amen. I was going to stand at the front door and say we're giving away free samples. <laughs> and then I, I actually I tried it with somebody and I said, they said, what is it? I said, love, kindness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, free, it's free as it gets. So uh, we're going to pick up our discussion on the church. And, you know, I put down we are the church because the church is not a building. It's, you know, it's us. It's everybody who's a believer. And uh, last week we learned that uh, the word that's used is, is ekklesia, and ek is a prefix that means out of, and kaleo is uh, the word, the verb that means called. So it's called out. We're the ones that are called out. So what do you think we're called out of? Remember what we talked about? It's for free. I didn't even think about it. <laughs> called out. What have we been called out of? Yeah, we're called out of the world. You know, but there's one passage that says, come on out. Come out from that, you know. But we come out in a way that we're still in. Because that's how we minister. So let me just go over a couple things before I move on that I, I want to make sure that we get down. We looked at these words that kind of describe the nature of the local church. They're kind of like metaphors. And the flock, we call the flock of God. And it kind of pictures our singular belonging to God. We don't belong to anybody else. He bought us, he paid for us, we are his. Completely his. And then there's the bride of Christ. And that highlights the fact that we're, there's a mutual belonging, just like a marriage. I belong to Jesus, but Jesus belongs to me. You know, we belong to one another. And then the church is also called the body of Christ, which kind of gives another look at belonging, but it means that we belong to each other. Just the way a human body has different parts, that, you know, this hand belongs to this hand because it's all part of the same body. So we actually belong to one another. And then uh, there's a, the, the picture, the word picture, of a building. And that picture kind of shows us that the church is a growing work that's in progress. It's constantly happening. And not only that, but we get the privilege of participating in that growth, helping others grow, letting others help us grow. So it's like building brick on brick. It's not just like poof and it's all there. And then because of our frailty, every generation is a new building. Because we're constantly building. As one part of the church goes to be with Jesus in heaven, the remaining people who remain continue on the process of building the church and building the church. And then finally, it's a temple. We realize that the building we're building is actually the dwelling place for God. And it shows us that the place of God's true worship is no longer in one building, in one place that everybody has to go to. Now, the building's not made out of bricks and stone, it's made out of people. And now the, the, the temple is alive. And now the temple can go anywhere. And wherever the temple is, worship can happen. Because God is giving us the ability to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Our spirit is alive, and Jesus is our truth. So, anyway, um, any questions about that before you plow into who's responsible and who gets the smack for not doing a good job and watching over the church? Any questions? Any comments? Okay, we're moving on. 
So, the church polity, you know, Scripture reveals that the authority and the spiritual responsibility of the church passes from the universal uh, apostolic rule. So the apostles used to be the one everybody used to go to, okay, to find out, well, what did Jesus say? What did you learn? Okay? It passed from the apostolic rule pretty quickly to uh, the local rule of a group of men of high moral caliber who are interchangeably called presbyters, which means elders, bishops, which means overseers, and pastors, which basically means shepherds. So all those, church, all those words are interchangeable in Scripture. You can see how you know, they'll use the words, um, you know, for instance, there'll be one passage that says that elders and, and equates them with uh, overseers, and another one will equate um, overseers with shepherds. So now we know that if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, something like that. It's mathematics. I mean, they would have thought they were you know, learning algebra. Um, so anyway, let's take a look at some of the, some of the verses here that discuss the, 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 the kind of person that God wants the church to recognize to be the one who's accountable. Who's going to be all accountable. By the way, we'll get to this a little bit later. But everyone's only accountable for themselves except for one group of people. And those are elders. When elders stand before God, they will not only give an account for themselves, but they'll give an account for you the people that they serve, the people that they shepherd, the people that they cared for. So it's, uh, actually, it's scary, you know? Um, but anyway, so let's read this. Here is a trustworthy saying, Paul wrote to Timothy, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, that's like a, the bishop, he desires a noble task, now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church, God's family? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fit, fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So that's one of the passages. Did you notice anything that's missing in there? How often you read the Bible? How often you pray? See how practical this is? You see how God is saying, listen, I want people, you know, I think he's assuming that people that live this way are going to have those practices in place. Because there's no way to live like that. You know? Uh, if you want to know, I've been like an elder forever, it seems like. And my wife could tell you that it's not me. At least, not all the time. Sometimes my halo is on straight. Sometimes, <laughs> I don't know where I put it. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's really an important uh, uh, for a church to really find individuals that are like this. Uh, why else should they look good? I mean, the outside stuff. Why, why, should, why, should, why do you think that's important? Yeah, they're an example. People are watching. You know, I, I know people that you know, are pretty, I know men, who are pretty, uh, pretty good Christian guys, I would say, but their neighbors don't even know who they are. You know, they're just like ghosts. They're different rod, you know, and, and um, I think God wants people who are, who are uh, responsible for his flock, for his bride, who, uh, who are known, who can be seen, who can be related to by other people, who are an example to other people. So there's, see, there's, it's really interesting, this picture that God develops. Let's look at it. 
uh, another passage here. This is Titus. Paul wrote this to Titus. He said, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife. By the way, it's the second time that phrase has been in here. And, and it literally means a one-woman man. So it's, it's not so much like, you know, if someone's wife dies and gets remarried, or, you know, for whatever reason there's, uh, you know, the wife would leave, you know, for infidelity or something, or because of faith, and then this person would get remarried, that that would mean that there are two women man. The idea is that the heart says, I've got one woman. You know, it's my wife, you know? So that's what that phrase means. It, it says, uh, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Yeah, you know, you can go up to the ask a young guy, hey, my, uh, would you like to be an elder in church? No, oh, my kids are wild. <laughs> <laughs> I got an excuse. <laughs> but, yeah, but anyway, I tried it, it didn't work. Uh, since, the, <laughs> since the overseer, I see it's interesting. Here's where it says elders, but then it says overseers. Okay? An overseer is entrusted with God's work. He must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick tempered, not. And see, it doesn't say he doesn't have to have a temper, no temper. But it's this idea that's, you know, a short fuse, a flashpoint, you know? So, uh, not overbearing, not quick tempered, not given to drunkenness. So I'm assuming that opens up, you know, you could drink wine or something like that. Uh, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Uh, you know, there's some people, who, men, who are aggressive in the workplace. And, you know, they kind of think that that's not part of, of the spiritual realm in which they dwell. When, when in rea reality, that their, their relationship with Jesus needs to be reflected everywhere in their life. So you can't have a guy who's like, you know, a killer in the workplace, and sitting in, in, you know, in finance or whatever, and come and be this really sweet shepherd. You know, there needs to be a, a balance throughout their, their, their whole uh, life. Um, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, you must be hospitable. There's that word again. A one who loves what is good, who is self-control, upright, holy and disciplined, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound doctrine would be feeding the flock. Refuting is protecting the flock. So an elder needs to know enough about the gospel to say, you know what, that doesn't sound quite right. And here's, you know, here's the passage of scripture that says, I think that that's incorrect. You know, or to see someone who's living a life incorrectly and be able to go over them and say, Here, here's sound doctrine, here's, here's the truth, and here's what can help you lead a life that's more fulfilling, more abundant, you know, and, and deal with your anger, or deal with your greed, or deal with your lust, or you know, whatever the picture might be. Now, it's interesting because as you look at the history of the church, the church did something really quickly that's, that's, that's a little different than what we just read. So what happened was as the apostles were martyred and spread out all over the globe, I mean, Thomas went to India, okay, so he was there. You know, Paul and Peter, they're killed, and other, you know, the other guys went to different parts of the world, <clears throat> and they were also... Uh, uh, martyred. Um, elders were holding the church, but there were many churches, many house churches in one community. So what they would do is they selected one of the elders and they made them the bishop of the town, the overseer of the town. And everything that was taught in all the churches had a pass through them. You know, just to make sure that it stayed correct, stayed right. All right? And that happened really quickly. I mean, Ignatius is one of the first uh, overseers that we see in, 
in, in history. And you know, he was he was an overseer of I forget which nations he was. Antioch, I think. But he was the uh, overseer and he and he did that role like in the year eighties and nineties. So that would be like within what, fifty years of the death of Jesus and probably within thirty years of the death of the apostles. So the church was really saying, okay, how do we make sure that what we have doesn't get, you know, diminished or changed or transformed or syncretized with other faith systems? And so what they did was they had these bishops, you know. But at that time, in the church throughout Europe and North Africa, we were all the same. There were no uh, differences. There were no... You know, Lutherans or Baptists, denominations didn't exist. So there tended to be this oneness across the whole church. Uh, any comments or thoughts about that as you hear those things? Is that kind of where the Catholic Church might have stemmed from then? Is like having the, the leadership roles and then they just became more and more bishops cardinals? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting because in a way it did. Huh? It appears that because the church in Rome was heavily influenced by the Roman culture, all of a sudden there were, there were elders who were named priests. Okay? Well, the temple worship had priests. And, and actually, the Jewish faith had priests as well. And so some of that stuff got brought into uh, the church. I believe that the book of Hebrews was written to... To, as a response to that, especially to Judaism, as, they, as the, the, the Jewish believers brought more of their traditions into the church. And so there was a heavy emphasis on, you know, what communion is, what a priest is, who's our priest, you know, we don't need a high priest anymore. You know, we don't need a, a, a temple anymore. So we don't need showbread anymore. We, Jesus is our, you know, so... You know, as I look through it as a, as a person who grew up Catholic, I say, whoa, I, that looks familiar to me. Yeah, so, anything else? Um, Peter says this, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care serving as an overseer, and not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So it's a high calling, high responsibility. Uh, and notice that Peter uses um, elders, shepherds, and they see overseers in there somewhere. Yeah, just below. Yes, right. yes. So he's got all three in there. So they're all equated. So even though like an overseer might have all of the the um, authority of doctrine in one whole town, okay, he was just considered the main person among equals. Okay, and and the whole church, you know, recognized. I mean, it's funny. You see these guys, and they're like, oh, we want you to be our, our bishop, you know? And they're like, no, don't let, don't, you know, I just want to be holy and sit there and pray and serve people, you know? They're like, no, we want you to, so, you know what happened to the last bishop? It was a pain in the neck of job, you know? And it's just amazing to see how they actually sometimes just almost kidnapped them and threw them in the church and wouldn't let them out and say, no, we want you to, and they're like, all right, I'll do it, you know? So it's, it's kind of fun. So elders... Well, because that's it. Not because you must, but because you are willing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. You'll be willing. Yeah, I missed that part, didn't I? So, that's <laughs> so funny. So when you go through scripture and you see uh, the components that, that the elders, the environment that the elders put together, there's kind of six basic church components. And um, so the, ones, the first one is uh, scripture-centered teaching. You know, uh, in... in uh, Acts 2.42, it actually says the apostles' teaching. Uh, fellowship, you know, the, the unity that we have, the breaking of bread, which either can mean communion or being together, 
You know, I mean, we can have community. We could all be together, okay, like in this class. But how many of us have a relationship with one another in this class? Ah, see, that's where this has got to move to. It's not just, oh, yeah, you know, I know, I know, let me see in class. It's where you get to know one another, get to be involved in each other's lives. Uh, breaking of bread, which could be um, like having a meal together, or it could be the Lord's Supper. It, depending on how you see it or read it, it could be one or the other. Prayer, the, the church gathered to prayer, the church gathered to worship, and then the church also came together to give. They collected money, and they made sure that money got to people who needed it. That was going on in, in Jerusalem at the time because of the persecution of Christians, and they weren't, you know, their, the land was being taken from them. They were losing their jobs. It was not a good time for early Christians. So, uh, Acts 2.42 says, They were continually devoting themselves, they are the Christians, uh, to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then uh, 1 Corinthians says, On the first day of the week, each one of you, Paul says, should set aside a sum of money in keeping with the income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. It's really interesting because, you know, we often hear that from the front uh, tithes and offerings. We're not under any tithes. Okay? We believe God owns it all. And so if it's 10%, 5%, 90%. I mean, I know, we know people that reverse tithe. They kept 10%, wealthy enough to do that. They gave away 90%. And I want to tell you, that's, that is a heavy burden because it's easy to be Santa Claus. And you can ruin a person's life by helping them in a way that God does not want that to happen because he's working in their hearts. So you got to be really prayerful and careful. But anyway, as far as giving, you know, we, God really, we believe, I believe, God's calling us to grace giving. He told the Philippians, he said, you guys are so poor. He says, I don't want to take any money from you. And the Philippians came back at Paul and says, how dare you tell us who we can't give to? This is the Lord's money. And he goes, well, if God's given you the grace to give, I'll take it. So that's what we feel. We feel that God has given us the grace to give. You know, but don't sit up in church go, I didn't get the grace to give, you know, so. No, 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 that doesn't work. Yes? You speak into the, in the Old Testament where Doc talks about giving a tenth yeah. of your, uh, you know, what's the framework of that? Uh, sure. How about people still apply that today? Yeah, well, it, first of all, let's just say that, you know, we're given all of Scripture as a good reference point, okay? It teaches, it all teaches us. So, you know, I'm not saying let's throw out 10%. 10% is actually probably a good place to think about and start. But it's not because it's a command that God says give a 10, okay? There were actually a lot of taxes. I think the taxes ran up to about 25 or 30%. There was a temple tax, there was the tithe, there were offerings that were given, you know. So it added up to, you know, quite a substantial amount of money. There was first fruits. You know, so people would do their first harvest run through. And instead of selling it, they would bring it to the temple. And they would offer it, some in fire and some to the priests. Um, so the tithe part of it, you know, it goes back to the tithe that Abraham gave to Melchizedek. You know, so we see that 10% there. And we see that 10% kind of pop up throughout uh, the Old Testament. So for us, it's a good reference point, you know. And if you want to give 10%, I mean, Candy and I have tried to do that over all the years. And sometimes we were like copious to make sure that if we got money in, money went out. Okay? And every time we did our taxes, we were like, holy cow, we got to get more away. How did this happen? You know, it was like, I mean, for us, it was fun because we can never keep up with God's graciousness. You know, he always gave us more to give more. So it's a good thing, right, Pam? Yeah. Good. Okay. So I'm not making, I'm not stretching too much. Did that help at all? Yeah, I'm just curious. You know, I think there are people that get, that get hung up on what should be given to the church. And a lot of people will want to reference that tenth. Yeah. Um, I believe what 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 Leviticus number somewhere in there. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. All yeah. of the the rules and regulations for the people while they were wandering. 
know, I think some of they're again getting caught up in between living in the past and then also reading the New Testament and how you're supposed to give graciously out of a pure heart and to be joyous in doing that. Right. Um, and hilarious. So that, hilarious, actually. Yeah. The word <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, like I said, it's, it teaches us. The Old Testament is there to teach us. It teaches us how, how this all got to Jesus and, and also teaches us in a lot of ways what God is living look like. You know, so... To um, so the ten percent picture, it's good for us to see. You know, it's good for us to kind of hold it up and say, okay, you know, well, where am I at with this? And so, but it's grace. It's the grace we've been given, so we're free to give. You know, one of the passages that I love in in Corinthians is where it says that He, Jesus, became poor, so that through His poverty we might become rich. Okay, and that's, that's the way I think we should all kind of live, live our lives, you know, to be, to learn how to give away, you know, whatever it might be, finances, time, listening ear, prayers, um, so that, you know, we actually make other people rich, and that's respect. Okay, uh, elders' responsibilities, there's a list of them. They're to encourage spiritual maturity and unity and love. If you don't mind, I'm not going to read these passages, but they're given so that you can go back and look at them. They're to stimulate saints to fulfill their priestly role. So we're there to kind of poke and prod a little bit, you know, to encourage, to move along. Uh, we're there to care for and protect the flock with discipline. You know, I've had to be a part of elder teams that have had to... Disciplined people, um, very severely, actually. And um, we have actually seen God do miracles through that and just transform lives. And in fact, I remember one church, and one time, this one person, as we were reading the letter to discipline, in which everybody in the church knew was coming, the church wept. We wept because it was so painful to do this to someone that we loved. But we knew there was something about this discipline that had love in it too. And, and by God's grace, God took that person and put him in a place where they were, they were actually, their life was in danger. And uh, the church came around that person and, and literally saved them. And that person went on to become a fabulous follower of Christ. But it went through this really, really hard door that was disciplined. We're there to defend by refuting error. You know, when I was a pastor, uh, I would do pretty regularly uh, a message, one message on, on um, Oprah's latest book that <laughs> she was promoting. <laughs> and, and I would just show, you know, through the testimony of Peter, Paul, and Jesus, how. It would probably be a dangerous book and, and full of spiritual lies and incorrections. So anyway, but you know, and I would do that with other books too. Um, promote autonomy. You know, one of the things we want to do is we want to see other healthy churches. Um, so we network with follow churches. And you may not know this, but uh, Grace just invited the pastors and elders from four other churches to come here and we had a worship time together. The church, churches that are hurting, yeah. the pastors are hurting. They've had to bear so much, you know, and it's been political things and COVID things and, you know, oh, it's just been, and it's, it's, so we decided, let's get us all together and pray for one another. And we did. And there were tears, you know, but we hoped that what was happening would be promoting that church. To tell them, listen, you're not alone. There's other churches with you. Yeah, we're going through similar things, you know. But let's pray for each other. Let's encourage one another. So promote autonomy. Uh, we're going to be accountable for the spiritual obedience and growth of others other than ourselves. You know, like I said earlier, it says obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Okay, why? 
They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. So, after God says, okay, Wayne, what works have you done in the body? He's going to say, okay, Wayne, um, how did you do leading my flock? Did they grow stronger or weaker with you? Did they become more like my son? Or did they become more like you? You know? I mean, I'm not looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to more of the part where I'm running through the field with Jesus and we're going, yay, it's done. You know? But that's going to be an awkward moment. But I think it's going to be full of grace. Deacons, the other uh, segment of the, of the church, other um, leadership in the church, polity. Unlike elders who are held responsible for the spiritual welfare of the church, deacons are stewards serving the material or practical needs of the church. And I believe that they are men and women of good repute. So it says over here, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Then it says women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Um, some people translate that word that I have here from the NASB that's translated woman into wives, meaning the deacon's wives. I don't believe that's the way it should be translated because that is not said of elders. No mention about elders' wives. Okay? So I believe that means women. So for me, and also as you look through the testimony of Scripture, there's Dorcas who did work in the diaconates for, uh, for the clothes that she made. You look through the history of the church, and there are deacons that were assigned different jobs. Uh, it, I don't know if you had a chance to go and read the, uh, the journal of. of um, Perpetua and Felicitas, but you'll find deacons in there that were assigned to go visit those that were in prison going to death. So, uh, what, what, going to death. There were ones that were going to the uh, animals to be torn apart, martyred for the faith, because they would not uh, offer sacrifice to the emperor. Um, they're to do works of service. Brothers, uh, Choose seven men from among you that are known for the full of the spirit and wisdom. And uh, we will turn this responsibility, which was actually feeding the widows who were not Hebrew, uh, they, were Pal they weren't Palestinian widows, but they were Hellenistic or Greek uh, widows, Jewish women, that they were, they were kind of being ignored or they weren't being given as much food. So they created this group of guys who went and made sure that these uh, widows got their food, got their share of what was given of, uh, by the rest of the church. So deacons are responsible for the material and practical needs of the church, elders for the spiritual needs of the church. Okay. Um, any questions about deacons, deaconesses? Seems like a lot of levels of bureaucracy. There's just two. I mean, unless you, I don't know, what, which ones do you see? Well, no, earlier on, you know, um, the, uh, oh, the bishop? The bishops, and, you know, and that's what I see in certain oh, yeah. religious, yeah. Um, other, other faiths, I should say. Yeah. Right, Candy and I actually attended a church that didn't even have a pastor. We just had a group of elders, and uh, it was good. There was really good things about it. There were some not so good things about it. They could be very uh, so autonomous that it could be legalistic and start looking down their nose at other churches for, you know, not being a New Testament X two church. <laughs> you know. So, 
You know, unfortunately, we're prone to adding. Uh, let me just give you a quick picture of how this happens. Adam and Eve are made. God tells Adam, do not eat from any tree in the, the, in the Garden of Eden you can eat from, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? That's all I said. That's all God said. Now the devil goes up to Eve, says, hey, I understand you can't eat from any of the trees. And she goes, oh no, that's not true. She goes, we can eat from any tree, except for that tree over there. Is that one we cannot eat or touch? Wait a second. Where'd that come from? Well, evidently, I think that came from Adam. Because Adam was given a responsibility to be the shepherd of his wife. That was his fly. Okay? So he tells Eve to do what uh, God told her to do. But then he said to himself, you know what? If not eating it is good, not touching it is even better. That was the first step towards religion. We started making religion, I think. Because I think uh, not eating would have gone to not touching, which would have gone to not looking at, which would have gone to not thinking about, which would have you know built a wall around it, and now it would have been the tree would become an idol, you know. So yeah, you're right. I think we're prone to making too much out of something that's simple. Uh, any other things? Just real quickly, church ordinances, baptism, and communion. There's only two ordinances or sacramental rites commanded by Jesus. Get these three things. They're commanded by Jesus in the Gospels. They're practiced by the saints in the book of Acts. And they're taught in the epistles. That's kind of like the standard that we measure. What is it that every Christian should do in the church as far as ordinances or sacraments. So again, it's commanded by Jesus in the gospel, practiced by the saints in the book of Acts, and taught in the epistles. So there, there's only two of them. It's the water, the water baptism and the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper or communion. Ordinances do not dispense any special grace. You don't do them to get anything from them. You do them because you love Jesus and he asked you to do it. And they are symbolic or memorial in nature. So let's take a look at one of them, baptism. Baptism literally means to be immersed or literally to be made fully wet. Its precedent is found uh, with a, is, is actually not found, that should be wrong there, is not found in the baptism of John, which was for repentance of sins. John's baptism was to repent, okay, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came along, the Christian baptism has no such meaning. Jesus commanded each of us, of his disciples, to baptize new disciples or believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The forgiveness had already taken place. By faith, people came to Christ, and they were forgiven. Baptism was a matter of following the command of the Lord, because I believe it's a visual. You know, it's a visual of a couple things. One is going into the water, it's like dying. Coming out of the water is like being resurrected. For me, I think it's also like being dripping clothed in Jesus. That just the way someone comes out of the baptism found, soaking wet. When they give somebody, they make them wet. I think we should make people wet with Jesus. And then when someone walks out of the baptism fountain, they leave wet footprints everywhere. I think we should leave footprints of Jesus everywhere. So for me, it's all the symbolism, this whole picture. And it's actually commanded by God. And other people, other faiths know this. Because you can say you're a Christian like in a Muslim world, and they'll give you grief for it. But the day you get baptized, you die. So other faiths know the significance of this important um, ordinance. Baptism always follows faith and is not saving nor does it dispense grace or earn spiritual merit. Baptism is simply an obedience to the Lord's command and is performed only once in a believer's life. In fact, the scripture says that there's only one baptism, and it's not the water baptism. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that happens when you come to Christ as your Savior, and everything is made new. You are drenched in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit.
So baptism symbolizes the disciples' identification with Jesus' death and resurrection. It signifies an inward reality of membership to the body of Christ. And it symbolizes a response to true faith. Water baptism is not to be confused with the baptism of the Spirit, like I said. Something that occurs immediately when every believer professes faith in Christ. Communion, or the Lord's Supper, was instituted and commanded by Jesus on the Thursday before his crucifixion as a memorial of his body and blood that was to be shed for the new covenant it is to be regularly celebrated with his return. And there's the passages. It was recorded to have been practiced in the early church in the book of Acts. And it was taught by the Apostle Paul in the epistles. So there's the three things. There's the three that we, we measure by. As in baptism, only believers are called to participate in the Lord's Supper or communion. I have a pastor that I love when he used to sing. He would say, okay, this is a time for the family and we're gonna have communion. And only the children of God can participate in this. And then he would say, but I'm not telling you not to have communion. I'm gonna ask you to come to Jesus so that you could come and share this table with us. So if you would now repent and give your life to Jesus Christ, come and celebrate the communion with us. I love that, I just love that. Uh, Unlike baptism, though, a believer is encouraged to participate in the Lord's Supper as often as he or she wishes. And unlike baptism, this is really important, irreverent participation will incur spiritual judgment, even illness and death. Try that one out for size. So, it's uh, very holy, very important, very special. We're actually celebrating what Jesus did with his body. Uh, debate is divided over the church of whether the bread and wine actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus or remain symbolic elements. Jesus himself spoke of, to the issue of the eating of his body and drinking of his blood as being in the spirit. What I tell you, he said in John 6, like 66 or something like that, or 63, he says, what I say to you is spirit. Because they were like, what do you mean I'm going to eat your body and drink your blood? We're not going to do that. What's the matter with you? What do you think we are, you know? And he goes, no, what I'm telling you is spirit. So Catholics believe in something that we've called transubstantiation, where the elements actually become the body and blood of Jesus, okay? Luther comes along, and he believed in something that, that, that he didn't use this word, but we coined it consubstantiation because he believed that where the elements uh, where the elements are spiritually surrounded by the body and blood of Jesus um, but don't become the body and blood of Jesus and, and in the common book of prayer this is what he used to say this is the first edition said the body of our Lord Jesus Christ which is given for thee preserve thy body and soul unto, into, unto eternal life so that you can tell that it was the body. They saw that first profession as the body and blood of Jesus, okay? Uh, then along comes this guy called Zwingli, who's a count, and he's in Switzerland. And he's a religious guy. He creates a religious community. He's a very solid Christian man. And he said that, no, 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 no. The elements are just elements. They're just body and bread. And everything that we're doing here is a memorial, okay? But it's very spiritual and very special. But it's, it's, it's just the body, it's just the bread and the wine. And then when they revised the Book of Common Prayer, they changed it to this. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee, and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. So they begin to restructure how they, they said that little prayer for the saints before uh, taking communion. Any questions about any of these? Communion? Uh, baptism? Okay, so real quickly, um, I said that like about five times already. Real quickly. It's like Paul, you know? He goes in his letters, finally, and then he goes on for another chapter. <laughs> but, you know. So what about marriage? 
What about confession? What about foot washings? Well, uh, both are mentioned, all these are mentioned in the Gospels, but neither is commanded by Jesus. Okay? So marriage is blessed by Jesus in the Gospels, and it's taught in the Epistles, but it does not appear in the book of Acts. Uh, nor does Jesus command all disciples to be married. Alright? So there's the difference right there. And actually, Paul elevates singleness or celibacy to the status of marriage. It's just as good to be single as it is to be married, to give yourself completely to the work of God. You know? So that was very unusual for that time. So uh, that's marriage. Confession is found in the book of James, so it's found in the epistles, and it's also found in John's epistle, but it's not commanded, but it kind of looks like an ongoing spiritual practice of every believer. So it's something that uh, it says to confess to one another. Uh, it's good to be in a community. Remember we talked about the difference between community and relationship. It's good to be in a community where there is relationship, so I can go to you and say, I'm having trouble with X, Y, or Z. I need your prayers. I need to be held accountable. You know, um, when I was a Catholic kid, and we had confession, I remember going to the priest all the time and confessing, and I was always embarrassed because of always the same sins. And um, I loved it when we get this guy from Poland or the Czech Republic that didn't speak English. All the boys are lined up by him. Because no, he, they, all the kids knew he didn't speak English. And they would just go through everything, you know. And he, you know, they, was, they felt safe. You know, he just finally get it off their chest, uh, whatever it was. But, um, yeah, you know, we're to confess to one another. So confession is a good practice. But it doesn't meet the measuring of ordinance because it's not commanded. It's not the other, other of books. Foot washing appears in the Gospel of John, but is not commanded by Jesus. Jesus actually said, you ought to do this. In fact, the word literally means translated, you owe it to your brother or sister to wash their feet. Okay? So again, you know, it's, foot washing is not practiced in the book of Acts, it's not taught in the epistles, and it appears to be a visual metaphor of the ongoing or continuous work of forgiveness in the life of a Christ follower, and the ongoing and continuous forgiving owed to another believer. I'm washing your feet by saying I forgive you. Would you wash my feet by forgiving me? I've sinned against you. Okay? So, um, as a result, the Protestant Church has identified only two ordinances, and they are baptism, and communion. So, we did it. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on what you hear here? Any comments? Um, any questions? Any questions for the whole Jalabo? <laughs> I will always be available, make myself available if you have any questions about this stuff. Like I said, a lot of this, um, some of this is, is, is my opinion. Some of it is, you know, like rock solid doctrine from the church. And if you thought I said something that sounds fishy, please talk to me about it. I don't want to miscommunicate something. And if I'm wrong, I want to know and I want to think about it. So, um, yeah, please don't hesitate to talk to me about anything. We will not meet next week. Next week is Easter. We will meet for the final class the week after that. We will go through a uh, eschatological, eschatological timeline, times timeline. We're going to, I mean, it's going to be like, take a deep breath, put on your seat belts, because we're going to go cranking. And the idea is to expose you to the scope of which will be dispensational end-time theology, because that's kind of where I'm at. Uh, 
explain, you know, amillennial or covenant type of, of theology, but uh, it's just in basics. But uh, I think, I believe, to take all those things very literally. And um, so you'll get a timeline. We'll go through all of it. We're going to be joined by the Salt and Light class because they're going to be doing Dan and Revel Daniel and Revelation, or at least Revelation. So they will join us. So we're going to have a lot of people here, okay? Because our last class will be their first class. <laughs> all right. So they'll be taking, um, and they'll be going from there. And you, you can join their class. I know some of you from Faith Builders, you may want to go back to that class. But, oh my gosh, it was so wonderful to be with you guys. I really appreciate it. And this has been so good for me just to kind of refresh, you know, where I am at with things. Can we get someone to close us in prayer? Okay. Rick, I was just um, so grateful to learn and study about just how the church is and what the Bible says about everything we should be and we shouldn't be about as believers. And, um, so, Father, it just you really laid out my heart this morning to just be in more prayer and gratitude for the leaders of our churches. Um, there, that is such a, a weighty job, and they will stand before you someday and give an account for everything they've done. And so, Father, we just hold them up to you, that they would be um, constantly looking and reviewing what their position is and what they are to follow as you've given them very strict rules about um, what to do, and that there would be growth, there would be fruit from all their efforts, and that they would be doing it willingly. So Father, we just pray your Holy Spirit would continue to come upon them, convict them, and give them insight as to where they should go and how they should lead. Just ask a special blessing on them, and thank you for Wayne and his teaching and his candidness as he teaches. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.